afternoon and welcome to another edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. As usual, I'm your host and I'm not going to say who I am because after 31 episodes, everybody knows who I am. It is January 17th, 2013, and this is our first broadcast of the new year. And here in Greenville, South Carolina, it may be Thursday, but it's a good day for ducks. I look out my window and it is pouring outside. And uh, in fact, as I was driving into the office today, I heard the S word on the radio. Yes, they're calling for snow in Greenville, South Carolina. And those who listen to this podcast are probably thinking, well, that was two weeks ago. Who cares? Well, when you're from Western New York and you move to the South, the last thing you want to see is snow. So anyway, be that as it may, we have snow in the forecast here at Greenville Seminary in Greenville, South Carolina. But it's good to be with all those who listen faithfully to this podcast, and I appreciate all the feedback and information I've gotten over the last year or so in 30-so broadcasts that we've done this. And we look forward to a new year, new exciting things, and uh, things on tap that we're going to be doing, especially as we lead up to the Seminary Spring Theology Conference that will be held in March And we'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute. Today we have an interesting discussion, one that I would say I have not heard discussed often, if if ever, in the podcast world. And we're going to be talking with a man who, as he was looking to be a pastor, as he was seeking a call as a pastor, he put together a bunch of questions, a series of questions, on things that he would like to ask the churches that may be considering him. We're going to be talking about some of those topics, some of those questions, with a gentleman who's been pastoring now for 12 years uh, here in Lawrence, South Carolina. So more about that in just a minute. I did mention the Spring Theology Conference. That'll be coming up in March of this year. It's a very exciting conference. The Doctrine of Man is the topic, and I would encourage those interested in finding out more information about that to simply go to our website at gpts.edu. We have uh, a, a, a good number of speakers on tap. Many of those are household names, if you want to use that term. Uh, Dr. Joel Beakey is our keynote speaker for the two evening sessions. And so you want to find out more information, gpts.edu, and all that information, registration and whatnot, is there on the website. In addition, uh, be remiss if I didn't mention our GPTS mobile app, where you can hear this podcast as well as chapel sermons and just about everything else uh, on it, on the go, uh, wherever you may be. Um, If you don't have the GPTS mobile app, I only have one question. Why not? It's free, and you can download it for your Android or iPhone, um, and you can use it wherever you are. So take advantage of that resource that is offered here from the seminary to stay in touch with this podcast as well as other things. Now, on to the topic of the day. We do have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Robert Cathcart into studio, as it were. Actually, he's on the phone, but be that as it may, he's in in the studio. And uh, he is the pastor of Friendship Presbyterian Church. Uh, that's a PCA congregation in Lawrence, South Carolina. He has his MDiv from RTS Charlotte, as well as his DMIN from Erskine Theological Seminary. And uh, so, Dr. Cathcart, it's great to have you on. And um, it, this is kind of an interesting subject because uh, being in the seminary world like I am as a student, th- this is something that's in my future, as it were, uh, something that I need to be thinking about at some point in time. And so I'm, I'm curious, what caused you to, to think more deeply about some of these questions as you were seeking a call as a pastor? Why did you put this list together in the first place? Well, thank you, Bill, and thank you very much for having me on this afternoon. Um, probably the first 
situation that, that made this arise in my mind, I, I sat under a lecture of one of my professors at RTS Charlotte, Frank Kick, and he was sort of getting us ready for this round of interviews, and he maybe gave us 10 to 15 questions, and his heartbeat really was to be practical when we asked these questions. And one of the things that he really stressed to us is that we'd be as honest as possible with the pulpit committee, and also that they'd be as honest as possible with us. And so he said, you know, sometimes that takes a little more poking and prodding than you might think. And after having dealt with a few uh, public committees early on, it became obvious that he was telling the truth. And so uh, that was probably the first point where I started thinking about them. And then uh, my father-in-law is, is a long-term PCA pastor as well, and he mm -hmm. gave me another maybe 10 or 15 questions. And then after going through an interview or two, then you write your own, and then you co uh, collaborate a bit with your wife. And by the time you finish, you've got 40 or 50 questions to come before a committee with. Yeah, just for the listener's sake, I, I'm holding in my hand his list. Um, see, his list right here. The, you know that Rush Limbaugh thing with the paper? Okay, anyway, it's 47 questions. Now, it's I don't think these are like, um, if you don't have 47 questions, you failed your job or anything like that. But it, the point is it's well thought out and a well-developed thing. We're going to look at some of these particular things in just a second, but I do want to follow up on something you just said. Mm -hmm. You said it's important to be honest as possible with the pulpit committee. Why is that? The last thing you want to other do, other than the obvious, <laughs> other than the obvious, that you don't want to lie. You don't want to lie to these these gentlemen. You want to be as transparent as possible. But why is that so important? Well, the uh, great, obviously, um, uh, we want to we wanted to be truthful in all that we do and say. But but the one one temptation might be to uh, frame our answers to questions uh, in a way that we would expect the pulpit committee. Uh, to accept them. In other words, we may want to play to the crowd a little bit. We may be tempted to do that uh, either from a people-pleasing standpoint or I really need a job so I'm going to say the right things or you know, feeling some kind of pressure when you go into the to the interview that, that shouldn't be there. Uh, there are a lot of reasons maybe we would say something or soften something up uh, that we would want to say a little bit more firmly. Uh, there's just a lot of pressure in, in interview situations, but if you have kind of thought through what you who you are as a minister of the gospel, who the Lord has called you to be, your philosophy of ministry, your theology of ministry, uh, all that should come out through your questions and, and through your answers. And so the last thing you want to do is, is kind of come up with some contrived answers just so you can get the, the position, and then when you get there, life is miserable for you and for the church. Sure. Well, it sounds to me as you're talking about that process that in some sense, while the public committee may be interviewing, if you want mm -hmm. to use that word, right. you— you're also at the same time interviewing them. That is correct, and strangely enough, that is sometimes hard for the for the public committee to understand. And maybe that's even more acute in today's milieu of church because there are many more men looking for positions than there are um, churches looking for men. And that that whole dynamic, though, is still in play that you, that you need to be able to be sure that you're comfortable with the call before you accept it. And uh, I've just uh, a couple of times have had to say no. Uh, and, and oftentimes mm -hmm. there's, there's great offense taken because they kind of think, well, you know, we've come in here and offered you this and, and now you're saying, no, we've invested time in all this. But, uh, but remember that this is something that you have to sense a calling from the Lord to do. And so it is a two way street very much as you, as you enter these interview processes. I have, uh, for those who listen to this all the time, they know that um, I come out of the business world, um, have conducted countless interviews mm -hmm. with potential employees 
Um, and it's interesting, uh, the process of seeking a call doesn't parallel that process of looking for a job uh, hardly at all. Um, I do all the questions. I ask all the questions. They do all the answering. They don't typically ask me too many questions other than the obvious things like how much does it pay <laughs> and when, when do I start kind of thing. Sure. Um, so how does seeking a call in a congregation with a church really differ from that? Mm. Well, I think that the number one thing that we want to remember is that it is a call from the Lord. You know, we have to sense that internal call. Uh, there has to be that verification from the church and from the presbytery. And, and in one sense, uh, from the church where you're, you're leaving, there needs to be a sense that that call is done so that you're able to move forward. So the whole beginning of it is somewhat different, I guess, in that sense. Uh, though we can say that all of our, our work, regardless of whether it's done in the church or not, is certainly a vocation from the Lord. Uh, but there are many layers that have to be um, gone through before before that call can come together. So that that, that is definitely one angle. Um, mm-hmm. What um, you know, as, as I'm looking down through your list, mm-hmm. uh, I'm trying to ca- I'm trying to put some categories on them so that we're not sure. exhausting the listeners with every pedantic detail of every question, but one of the things I see coming up quite often um, in this, and and I think this is very important and actually quite interesting, um, is I can't help but notice how many times the elders are referenced in these questions. Um, Why is that such an important thing for a man seeking a call in a church? There's probably no relationship that will affect the quality of experience or in, for lack of a better word, enjoyment of the call, though that we're not always called to, to enjoy what we do in one sense. Um, but uh, there's nothing that will facilitate a, a healthier ministry than having a, an excellent relationship with a session. Um, so going into the call, having as much information about the way the session operates, the way the session has uh, dealt with the pastor beforehand is, is important to know as well, uh, because that will, in a large sense, determine the, the way that things go in ministry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've often heard uh, men uh, say, uh, in reference to their call or their, as they're pastoring a church, that you know if they feel as though the elders are behind them, that they're not just working over them, and, and in some sense, you know, the pastor is in submission to that. Mm-hmm. But there's also that working alongside and behind in support of what the pastor is trying to do, because he's, for lack of a better way of expressing it, he's that front and center kind of you know front and center guy. Right. Um, in the congregation. And um, so if a church is struggling through a particular issue or a particular um, uh, problem, mm-hmm. uh, the pastor may teach or preach on this. And if the session is and the elders are behind him, mm-hmm. it goes a lot easier. Mm-hmm. But if they're fighting him on every turn, then it's very uncomfortable, very difficult to accomplish anything. And, um, and I think the congregation senses that when that is occurring. So um, I, anyway, as I noted, I find uh, it striking uh, anyway, as, as, as I'm thinking about this, you know, still a few years away yet, sure. um, how important it is for the, for the man coming into a church to have those elders behind them. And some of these questions really pertain to that. For instance, one of the questions you asked here was um, how many elders teach and pray? And I've been in churches where the elders, they, they never teach for some unknown reason. Sure. Um, well, what, why did you ask that question? Why would that be so important to a man seeking a call in a church? Well, for one thing, uh, we know that elders are to be apt to teach, and 
making sure that, that the elders have a spiritual understanding of their office, that they're not merely uh, board members watching over a corporation, that they have an active and vital part in the church. And also, I think ideally, we would have our elders doing the lion's share of Sunday school teaching, Bible study leading, and those sorts of things, because they are the ones uh, particularly who are to adhere to the Westminster Standards and to uphold the ordination vows. If, if we have teachers who uphold our ordination vows, uh, we would think that we would have much stronger churches doctrinally. So that would be the main mm-hmm. reason. And it's part of their calling. We need to make sure that we're encouraging them in that calling. Absolutely. Now, and to dovetail that, you also asked this question in reference to eldersism. Like I said, I'm trying to categorize this for the sake sure. of the listeners because because this list obviously isn't in front of them. Right. Um, but you also asked this question, which I th- I think is uh, well, uh, pretty. It's a bold question. <laughs> I think important question. But you asked, do elders and deacons attend the Sunday night or Wednesday night services? Right. And maybe part of this is born out of experience. Uh, and when, when I was interning or when I was uh, working before, um, or I was an assistant pastor first, so I saw some of that dynamic as well. Uh, to me, it's very hard to ask the members of the congregation to attend those things if the officers are not leading. There to be examples of the flock. And that is, a, to me, a key component in having a healthy church and encouraging a body life as, as we ought to see it happening. And uh, so I think it's not that you wouldn't accept a call if they didn't do those things, but you would know that that is an area where you'd want to, to work. Mm. And also, uh, if there's an ambivalence, though, or there's a, you know, an, well, you know, that's just never happened here, that's not going to happen, then you kind of can say, well, that may be a, a consideration that, that, that maybe this isn't the right call. So, so uh, mainly, though, you'd want to just be able to diagnose, is this something that's, um, is this going to be one of my immediate things I need to work on when I get there? Yeah, you said something that was um, that I think is really uh, true about these questions um, is that they're not just information for you, but they also help you um, because not every one of these things, if they're answered, it may be in a way that you wouldn't like right. are d- automatic red flags, but they are sure. great for diagnosis mm-hmm. as to where you may think this congregation is, where they need to go, what are some of the red lights, some of the yellow lights. Mm-hmm. Um, because um, I, mean, I remember when, when I was thinking about going to seminary, a deacon in my church asked me, he said, well, what if you get a call from a church that doesn't subscribe to the regulative principle is, you know, way off the deep end? Sure. And I said, uh, well, I said, first of all, they probably wouldn't call me. Right. <laughs> I said, that, but I said, but if I, but if, I, but if a church was interested in maybe pursuing that route or was looking at going in that direction mm-hmm. as a session, I would need I would need strong assurances from them that they wanted to do that. But in those questions, I would know that those diagnostic type questions would give me some idea of where they're at on some of these issues. And I think that was, that's one of those questions where if you do have elders, as you indicated, that aren't faithfully attending all the services of the church um, outside of being providentially hindered, perhaps that's a, a, not necessarily a deal breaker, Mm -hmm. but it could be something that says, Hmm, something to work on because there's probably some uh, level of a lack of examples being set for the congregation. That's right. Uh, here, so that I think that that's a great way to look at these types of questions. Mm-hmm. You also asked a question dealing again with elders um, about their working relationship between the elders and the deacons. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I, I don't know about you, but it's been my experience in the reform world that the deacons sometimes get shoved off into the second back row, they're kind of the junior elders or the junior varsity, or they're not, their role isn't as important as the elders 
And so I'm, I find this, this question uh, very interesting. Why that question? Well, and that, that's very true. I think there are, often is an, a kind of a, even though our Book of Church order is pretty clear that, that the deacon is a spiritual office, um, sometimes we do have that opinion that, well, they're the, the church janitors, and they do all the physical work, and we do all the spiritual work. And in one sense, that's true. Uh, you can see why people would come up with that idea. However, uh, we don't want to create a, an adversarial relationship or one where, where elders are looking down on deacons. Mm. On the other side, uh, I've seen churches that were really dominated by the deacons. So uh, it can kind of kind of play both ways. But as as uh, one wise pastor once told me, that the, the the job of the pastor and the elders is to allow the deacons to deke. You know, let them do their thing. <laughs> sure, sure. <laughs> you know, encourage sure. them in their office and and let them don't don't interfere in their work. And then then you teach them not to interfere in the elders' work. But I think it's really important. One of the things that I bring up here in questions as well. Uh, how often do the elders and deacons meet together? And, yes. you know, it, it's recommended quarterly. In, in most congregations, that's probably what happens. But also there should be times, uh, for instance, at our church, we do a retreat with our elders and deacons where they can have time to decompress and just be brothers in the Lord together, study the Word together. You know, we go out and play golf, usually grill some steaks or something like that. So we're able just to kind of be together in, in life as well. Um, so that there's that sense of a team atmosphere instead of uh, one board does this, one group does this, and then we, when we have to get together, we do, and then we really don't want to, but instead that, that we see our, our callings taking place side by side, though in slightly different spheres. Hmm. Yeah, that's well said, and I think that's so important, especially what you said about creating that adversarial mm-hmm. element between the two. Um, I, I was in a church years ago where, um, it seemed like the deacons couldn't do anything unless the elders said it was okay. <laughs> and I and I asked a question um, just with a friend of mine who was an elder. Um, in fact, he was my shepherding elder. And I just said, mm. well, why aren't the deacons able to, by virtue of their office, do what the deacons are supposed to do without getting permission from the elders about every pedantic detail? <laughs> he said, well, we feel like we're you know responsible for the, for the spiritual oversight of the church, including the deacons. I said, well, okay. Even if that's true, I said, um, and I don't have any issue with that right. per se, I said, why can't you give them room upon which they are allowed to operate without necessarily having to roam to you guys about every little crisis? For instance, if a family has a, fi- a strong financial need, um, does the de- do the deacons have to get the elders' approval before they can cut a check or, or, or help them in some monetary way? And, and that's when he said, and he said, no, he said, we give them a limit. In other words, they can do up to this much money without our involvement, but there's like a questionnaire and processes that they put in place to ensure that this is well-spent money and that kind of thing. Sure. But the point of all this is that the deacons have to be allowed to be the officers that they're called to be. That's and right. Without having, without having daddy, the <laughs> elders, um, hold their hand all the way along the process. And, um, and I think when that happens, you create that adversarial mentality and the deacons aren't really able to do their what they're asked to do, not by the elders, but by the Lord. That's right. Uh, in, in their spiritual office. That's so right. um, I think that's a great, great question. And then you ask this question, which is germane, I think, to eldership, but maybe a little bit higher level, mm-hmm. um, about the ethos of the presbytery. Now, before you answer that question, you may have to, for our listeners' sake, tell us what you mean by the ethos. Uh, I think essentially we mean the atmosphere of the presbytery. What is, uh, okay. you know, and I think each. This may not necessarily be the best thing in the world, but but it, it's the reality of, of of PCA life anyway, and I'm sure it's the truth in other Presbyterian bodies. Uh, different Presbyterians take on different characteristics, have different 
um, things that drive them, different um, motivations, and sometimes uh, they're doctrinally driven, sometimes they're missions driven, sometimes they're uh, driven by other things. It, it's a, a fair amount of variety even within the PCA. Uh, but just getting an idea of, of what I, how would I fit in this presbytery, what, what kinds of things could I bring to it, what would be some pitfalls, you know, getting an idea of uh, would I fit in well doctrinally, would this be a difficult thing for me? Again, that's not necessarily a deal breaker at all, but going in with your eyes open is, is an important part of, of the process as well. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Now, uh, you raised a question for me as I'm, again, looking at this list. Mm-hmm. Um, knowing that you're a PCA minister, right. um, I, I personally, I'm, I, as you know, yes. I'm in the PCA. Um, is this list PCA specific, or is this list something that a man could say, "Hey, I'm in the OPC. Could I use this there?" I'm sure you certainly or, could. There may be some some things you'd want to adapt here and there, but uh, that would be obviously something that you could you could look through and see. Hey, well, you know, we don't have this problem, but maybe we have this problem, or we have this situation that's just a little bit different. But I think I think you could take it into any reform body. Yeah, and I asked that question because of question number eight mm-hmm. on your list, yeah. and, and we talked off air uh, briefly about this, but you asked the question about the two office, three officer, two and a half office view. So as you answer this question, again, at, for the sake of the listeners, you may have to maybe elaborate on what, what do we mean when we say two office or sure. three office, and, and why is that an important, maybe maybe not a deal breaker yeah. issue? It could be. It might for be. some it would be. I think for some it would be. Right. Um, but it may not be for everybody. But why is this so important and, and to have that information up front? Right. Well, I think the, essentially the, the two-office view means that there are elders and deacons in the church and that there's not as much difference between the office of ruling elder and teaching elder. There'd be a, less, a lesser differentiation in terms of duty, in terms of uh, all of them would be the same authority. But, but in terms of, of actually what, how much teaching and praying and, and how much uh, public use of the office you would see uh, would be less differentiated in the two office view and the three office view uh, maybe you would have the the teaching elder uh, i wouldn't want to say slightly above in rank but maybe that's maybe that's how practically it looks uh, where you have teaching elder as one office ruling elder as another and then uh, deacon as a third office and the two and a half office view is probably the most predominant one in the pca and frankly would be probably be my view, is where you'd have a ruling elder and teaching elder um, differentiated in terms of duty somewhat, though there would be overlap, but obviously in authority there would be uh, the same the same type of authority from uh, uh, the deacons in that sense that you'd have two and a half offices. Uh, why I think that's important, uh, if you have one of these convictions, let's say you're a three-office man and uh, you went to a, a two-office church, I think you would automatically create friction among uh, yourself between yourself and and the and the session because they would be expecting you to have a different level of submission maybe and an oversight than you would be willing to uh, to have uh, so i think there could be frustrations uh, born in this if if you are not a good match in terms of the way that they view the offices mhm yeah and and in fact i just had had a conversation recently with another student about this mm-hmm. particular subject and we we're trying to yeah adequately define, you know, the differences in the two-and-a-half office view and that kind of thing. I had heard a teaching elder say that he sees himself as the greater among equals, and not himself personally, but right. his office as a teaching elder, sure. meaning that he has a, 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 a more the two-and-a-half view, and that is that while he is equal with the other ruling elders in the congregation, only he 
administer the sacraments. Only he is ordained to preach the word. Right. And so um, there, there is that, that subtle, that, that little difference, which mm-hmm. I agree with completely, mm-hmm. that the ordained minister, the teaching elder, is the only one who should be actually engaged in those activities. So thus, a ruling elder, if the teaching elder was sick and there was the Lord's Supper that week, mm-hmm. a ruling elder would not have the authority to administer the sacraments. Right. And, and, and that plays into the worship issue, mm-hmm. which you do have a number of questions on, um, on, on this list as well pertaining to worship. I'll start with a really easy one. Tell me about robe wearing. <laughs> right. I have that. Uh, that is a, a preference of mine that I, that I, I do wear a robe. And, and so one of the things that I, would, I always ask when I'm coming into a, a situation like that is, is that allowable? Um, you know, obviously some, it seems to me that, that uh, you know, some churches for different reasons object to, to robes, some because they're more low church, others because they're um, rejecting vestments of any kind. And so kind of getting a feel for what the people uh, are thinking on that. Again, that's not necessarily a deal breaker, but but it is a preference. And yeah, I guess my argument is in the historical one that that is the, uh, the 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 Genevan robe is sort of the the uniform of the Protestant pulpit, and it uh, sets the man apart as one who has studied for the ministry. It is a scholar's gown. It is not a vestment in any in any way, shape, or form, but uh, is the, the the uniform of the minister of the word. So that's uh, that that would be my conviction as to why I would. Um, wear one again. It, is, it wouldn't necessarily be a deal breaker in terms of whether they would allow it or not. But but it's something that I want to put forth as this is where I am on this, and I want you to be uh, aware of it before we we move any further. Absolutely. And continuing with worship, and 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 I don't think I need to tell you this, but of course the issue of worship is probably going to be one of those mm. subjects that's going to come up from both directions, right? Um, right. In these kinds of circumstances, sure. And you do ask the question about music ministry yeah. and perhaps committed to hymns and psalms only or who picks out the congregational singing. Yeah. But I think let's broaden that out a little bit okay. as we talk about that. Um, because as I'm piecing, you know, leafing through all these questions, you know, certainly the issue of worship comes out. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this subject in general, and then we can drill down to some <laughs> of these other specifics, why is this issue of worship so important? In both directions, both from the session understanding where the candidate is on his idea of worship, and both, and then for the session or the, the pulpit committee, for their understanding of, or for the for the candidate to, to understand where the where that pulpit committee, thus the the session is on worship. Mm-hmm. Well, I think from a yeah taking it taking the high road on it or taking the the elevated position on it, this is the most important work of the church. This is our greatest duty as a believer in Christ is to worship. Our public worship is a time when our Lord speaks to us most clearly in the in the priest word and prayer and in the sacraments, and so we need to make sure that that we have a high view of it and that that we would have a similar view. Uh, so that that would be probably the the number one thing. The second thing would be it is an area that creates tension, and it certainly can mm-hmm. create tension because um, it's one of those things. And, and, and I don't want to frame it just as a musical issue because it's not necessarily. Um, but uh, but like music, I, I think worship is similar that people think they're experts on it because they do it every week. And so mm-hmm. um, there is that sense in which sometimes folks have ideas and preferences um, and, and they, they feel very strongly about them. They have emotional attachments to them maybe because of, of the way they've grown up or they've always done it this way in my church or I saw this other church doing it and it's working for them. And so uh, everyone wants to bring those kinds of things to the table and if that's what a session meeting is like every week, that, that would be very difficult. 
in terms of, of getting things done and, and making sure that you're maintaining you know, what Scripture says about worship. Yeah, and I think you're right. I think that this issue is is probably the most would be for at least for me. I can speak for myself. Um, this would be a very important mm-hmm. element in the discussion because, sure. as I indicated even earlier, um, if a church was committed to maybe they weren't if you know following the confessional um, ideas of the regulative principle, they were way out there in left field. Mm-hmm. And I'll just leave that to the listeners to figure out what I mean by that sure. without getting overly specific. Right. Um, I think people who know me know exactly what I mean. But anyway, um, <laughs> that was free. Um, but, you know, this would be for me a very critical piece yeah. because this is where my ministry, uh, as far as the very public yeah. element of my ministry, is going to be most visible. That's right. As well as the church and what its role and function is and what worship actually is. And you've already explained that. Um, if, you have a con- if you have a session or uh, that is unwilling, unyielding, to move in what I would argue is the confessional view, the regulative principle, the biblical view, um, yes. then it's uh, to me this might be a deal breaker. Right. Um, this might be a situation where I uh, everything else may be great, but we are going to butt heads yes. here, and it's going to happen every week. Right. And that's a problem. Whether you give me a laptop, which I see as one of your questions, <laughs> um, right. or not, is it going to end the world sure. if it doesn't happen? Right. But right. this this could um, absolutely. Would you agree with that? As it would be a, a very critical element. I, I would certainly agree with that, and it's probably the thing that, and, and I would think maybe for for your typical Greenville student and, and some of your more uh, conservative students from other other seminaries as well, uh, it would be the thing that would limit your potential as well in terms of of pulpits, in, particularly in the PCA. Let's say, uh, not to be negative about that or to think negatively about it, but. Uh, it would it would it's something that um, because it's because it is the fundamental thing the fundamental duty of a of a believer in Christ and of a church to worship uh, uh, we need to make sure that we understand where we are on this issue uh, that we understand that we worship according to scripture that we worship biblically uh, and when we do that it sometimes uh, will limit our opportunities but we need to trust mm-hmm. the Lord uh, to provide for us instead of going into a place where um, we would have great tensions over the matter. On the other hand, I'd say if a session is willing to be open uh, to be led and to be taught, and even if they aren't worshiping, as we would say, that, see the confession teaching us, uh, if they're open to, to being taught and they're willing to, and I'm just be very frank, uh, to lose members over it, or even mm-hmm. for a, a session member to get mad uh, and stomp out at some point, or uh, if they're willing for some of that to happen, and you as a pastor have the stomach for that, um, then it, it certainly could be a situation that, that you could go into. So that, that is a, we would never want to say that there's not room for reformation in, in these churches and for the Holy Spirit to convict uh, people of, of biblical principles when it comes to worship. Uh, but at the same time, if, if they're committed and avowedly so uh, to a, 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 a type of worship that, that is, uh, in your mind, unbiblical, or at least uh, close to that. Uh, well, maybe maybe that's being uncharitable, but but sure, sure. far away from our pattern that we see as as historic Presbyterians, um, then it, it would be best uh, to to wait for that church to become more open before you could go there and lead them. I would say. Yeah, and you made a good point there. Is that this is one of those issues that sessions have to consider the reality that if they turn that corner, right, people may leave, right. 
And and of course that should not be the that should not be the the catalyst upon which we make our decisions. Uh, no, not at all. Um, but it but it's a reality. Right. And um, it's one that, that that people wrestle through. I'm sure they wrestle through. You know, should we make this change? And I think there's some pastoral wisdom that says, you know, we don't we don't bring a new pastor in and then immediately the next following Sunday we've completely revolutionized the worship service. But if 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 there's you you, you teach and you move in that direction, mm-hmm. um, it takes time. It's not something that happens overnight. I know men who've who've gone off in, in, to their first church mm-hmm. and the church doesn't have an evening worship service and they feel very strongly that they need to have an evening worship service. Right. This is the Lord's day. We should we should bracket it with morning and evening and that's that's the, what they, how they understand that. But the session that they're they're working with isn't really there yet, mm-hmm. but there's compromise. They're saying, "Okay, look, we, we're not 100% on board with this, but we know you are, and so we'll do one evening worship a month." Right. And but that's leading the congregation yeah. there. That's through the teaching and and preaching ministry trying to awaken in their own minds and hearts of the importance of this thing and showing it to them by doing it at least once a month. And there's some wisdom there yeah. um, and maybe prevent people from voting with their feet right? and uh, running out the back door and sure. joining the next church down the street. But I think you're right. I think the worship issue is very critical piece. And you've asked some other questions. We, we talked about the robe and mm-hmm. um, we, you know, I, we, I don't think we really need to get into the music element. We've, that's kind of the whole idea of worship. There is a, a, a topic here um, mm-hmm. that you bring up and I, and I, as I'm looking at, it, I think, boy, I, you know, I, I'm kind of, I'm a bold person. I think, um, maybe to my own detriment at sure. times. But um, question twenty-eight on the list um, mm-hmm. for a for a man who's coming in, he's he, you know he's he uh, just trying to think out of the box here. He's yes. he, he's been married seven or eight years. He's got two children in diapers. Mm-hmm. Um, he's trying to provide for their well-being. Um, he's looking for his first call. He's worked so hard in seminary, and he's excited to to get into the ministry and work and labor with people. And then you ask this question, are there any discipline issues pending? That seems, <laughs> that seems very, um, well, frightening uh, question because one, it's a, it's a pretty bold question, but two, the answer may scare you half to death. Very true. Uh, again, I think you want to go with your eyes wide open and, uh, a follow-up question to that, uh, could be, especially at maybe, smaller churches that, that might display some level of dysfunction, whatever that might be. Um, a question could, you know, that could follow up, uh, does the discipline issue have anything to do with the last pastor leaving? Uh, you know, cause oftentimes there is that, there's that dynamic where one fellow has left either because he, he got out of there as quickly as he could, or he was removed or, or something like that because either they didn't deal with the discipline issue adequately or uh, because it was too big for for that particular person to feel like he could deal with, or they were not um, involving somebody else who might be able to help him, like like the shepherding committee, presbytery, something like that. So I think I think it's very important to, uh, if you're going to step into a mess, you better know what the mess looks like before you get there. Now mm. the other side is that they're probably not going to tell you everything that's happening there, and maybe rightly so. There may be confidences that should not be betrayed, or or something like that. But but you want to have a, as clear a picture as you can before you arrive on the scene. And again, that's something that, that if there is something brewing or pending, maybe say they call you and you have two or three months before you enter the field, you can begin to, to work on that as much as you can, become, get up to speed on it, and, and see how you can be a help as you, as you come into the situation. Sure. Have you ever asked this question? Oh, sure. When you were, when you, what kind of responses did you get? Well, the, it's funny. Uh, when I came here at, at Friendship, it was silence at first. 
the next thing they said, well, you're only 28 years old. I don't know if you're old enough to handle this. <laughs> that was the, uh, <laughs> so your scenario that you set up is exactly, exactly right. Uh, and so then they, they, they looked at each other and said, should we tell them? And they finally said, yes, we'll tell them. And so they, they told me pretty much the story. And so it was, it was very good to know it. And it was, and I'm very thankful that they were uh, upfront and frank about it. You're only 28 years old. Yeah. I would have thought, hmm, I'm <laughs> sitting in front of you as a potential candidate in the ministry. I'm 28. That hasn't, that the age hasn't changed that. Right. Um, that's right. Well, anyway. <laughs> that's right. But, but it, well, that's good. I mean, it's good to hear your own experience in relating to that question because I, sure. I can think of a number of, I, I think generally speaking, people candidating would see that question and say, I'm not asking that. Are you crazy? I'm not asking <laughs> that question. Um, number one, I'm afraid they might dump the truck on me, sure. which could happen. Or number two, they may tell me it's none of my business right. and kind of create a, a negative attention sure. that you sure. didn't mean to create, but it happened right. nonetheless. This is why this process, as we indicated earlier in the discussion, um, it's so very different from going to a company <laughs> looking for a job. Right. And, um, um, I mean, I can't imagine a potential employee sitting across the desk from me and saying, so uh, do you have to, how many people have you fired in the last three months? Right. What well, kind of question is that? That's right. Yeah. It, 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 that's, it's, it's much more of a partnership than, than a, an employee employer situation. And, and I think that, that's, that's, that's an excellent way to, to bring that point out. Sure. Now, you also on here, you, you bring up a subject that I know for some ministers, this, this issue, um, well, creates some difficulty. Um, it, it's the issue of church finances. I, yes. I was speaking with a, a, a PCA minister not too long ago, and um, apparently his situation wasn't ideal when he went in there. But he told them up front when he was candidating that he would not be writing the checks. He would not be paying the bills. And uh, he would not be doing the bu- budget, the finances, or any other thing. And if, if it was up to him to do it, it just won't get done. Right. I mean, he was just very candid with them up front because that was not what he was called to do. Sure. Um, if he was called to be an accountant, that's what he'd be doing. Right. Um, how does, why is this so important, this particular question? And, 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 and maybe it relate any experience you've had with asking mm-hmm. that question. Well, I think, that, again, this kind of goes back to the, to the elders and deacons issue if your deacons are functioning well uh, it won't be as much of an issue but uh, obviously things aren't always equal in that in that in that sense so you, you may have some another level of dysfunctionality there the, the financial level um, one thing I think that it's very important I think your, your friend ideally is right that the pastor does not want to have any kind of ability to write checks you know, he wants to keep his hands off the finances as much as possible um, as, as I was told one time, and this is also true in terms of dealing with, with uh, ladies and young, young girls and things, uh, it's not enough to say that you didn't do it. Uh, it's, you need to be able to say, I couldn't have done it. And, and I think in terms of finances, that's very important that the pastor's hands are completely off of the finances in terms of the day-to-day running of things. Um, in terms of the big picture, yeah, you really do need to have an idea of, of how, how is the church functioning? Is, is it healthy financially? Uh, what are the goals? Yeah, one of the questions I have on here is what percentage goes to benevolences? You have a church mm-hmm. that's not supporting missions. You know, you need to find out why that's true. Uh, who they support is important, I think, as well. You know, are they mainly people from your own denomination? Are there a lot of parachurch groups or others that that are involved with that? Um, you know, so I think maybe as as Jesus tells us, you know, our uh, our treasure is where our heart is. Our hearts are, are on on our money as well. So. Finding out where's the church's heart when it comes to their treasure is a really important 
point as you, as you move into ministry because you find out their motivation. Are they there simply to preserve something? Are they looking to expand the kingdom of, of Christ? Uh, what, what is their, are they just trying to make it look nice so that when they die they'll have a nice place to, to, to come so people will have a, have a beautiful place for them to, to bury their, their family? You know, a, lot of, a lot of things are uncovered when you, when you ask financial questions. Yeah, I think you make a great point there about the heart issue. Mm-hmm. Um, I, when I was a little boy, I grew up in a Baptist church, and um, uh, the pastor would say, now, now I realize that this could be taken completely wrong. Um, but I think if, if people keep it in the context of which I'm saying this, no one will lose their minds or write me hate mail. Sure. Um, but he said that if you show me your checkbook, I'll show you the condition of, I'll show you the condition of your heart. Now, the point he was making, he, he wasn't trying to be legalistic about right. it. He wasn't saying that if you give a lot of money, then your heart's in the right place. And if you don't give a lot of money, your heart's in the wrong place. That, that wasn't the intention. The right. point is that it shows a priority mm-hmm. of what you believe to be really important. Um, sure. For instance, if you're a member of the church, uh, of a church and listeners, you can, take this, you can take this for however you want. If you're a member of a church and you're not tithing, if you're not giving to the work of the kingdom, mm-hmm. then you need to reevaluate. That's all there is to it. I mean, whether we like it or not, the church needs money to function. That's the world we live in. Sure. Um, and I think you make a great point that if a church, a session isn't committed to benevolence giving um, to missions, uh, members in need, uh, real need, um, and those kinds of things, if that's just not part and parcel of their, see their role as, as, as shepherds in the church, then there's something else wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's not their checkbook. Right. Um, I think right. It's, it's deeper than that. Certainly, um, and I think that's a great point that this question isn't just a isn't just an accounting question, mm-hmm. but it helps really do that diagnostic. Um, they may not even know you're doing it, right? But you're diagnosing their uh, their priorities, sure, in some sense. Um, so, does that make sense? That does. That's absolutely true. That that's exactly the the point there. That you, you want, and, and I think. Obviously, not every church is going to grow the way that you want it to. Is, is any pastor who's uh, worked in ministry long enough will, will tell you uh, your church never grows at the rate that you wish it would uh, in terms of, of expansion, in terms of evangelism and uh, conversions and, and new families and things like that. However, if there's a certain uh, hostility toward the, the, at least mm. the potential of that happening, then, then you know this is not maybe a place where, where the Lord is going to use me in that, in that, in that regard. So that might be a deal breaker. If, if they're just completely closed off to, to reaching out to others, and whether it be on a local level or on, a, on an international level or a national level or whatever, then, then you can pretty much tell that their hearts aren't going to be uh, into seeing uh, the kingdom grow. Mm. Yeah, I think that's well said, and I, and I, I think that pretty much exhausts that. I think sure. people just need to think about that, both from the membership perspective um, and elders who listen to this program, um, think about it. I mean, it's, uh, you know, where your heart is, where, you know, where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. Right. Um, and so, um, you know, I don't want to harp on the fact, you know, we're not, we're not the Benny Hinn ministry <laughs> organization here, that's right. but the reality is, is that, um, you know, um, I know in our church, we, we, our policy is to take 10% of the giving, mm-hmm. um, and give that to missions. We try to employ that process. Right. Um, some churches can do more, right? Um, but you know, you be faithful with that. I think the Lord will bless it in the long run. Now, question thirty-nine. I think it's an important question. It, it probably covers the vast majority of men who are seeking calls. 
sure. in the church. Um, and that is, and, and this is one that I think causes some angst, <laughs> frankly, um, uh, in, in, in some situations. And this idea of the, the, the role of the preacher's wife and whether we like to, it, whether it's true or not, whether we like to reject it or not, whether we'd like to resist it or not, the pastor's wife is different. Mm-hmm. And, and it may not be, it, it's, it's probably by convention, it, it, it's probably not anything biblically or oriented, but the reality is she's a reflection of her husband in a lot of ways. And um, I think this is a great question. Um, and have you, you, how in your experience have you used this question and what kind of responses have you gotten? Or maybe, maybe even also say why, why this question in the first place. Sure. Well, my, my wife grew up in the home of a pastor and she is the granddaughter and the great granddaughter of, of pastors as well. So this is uh, something that, that she definitely wants me to ask because she's seen, seen this happen in, mostly in very good ways. But uh, oftentimes, and, and maybe this is a newer thing, in, in some interviews that, that I've been able to be a part of, uh, they want the, the wife to sit in, for instance, which, which I think is sort of odd, and she thinks it's sort of odd. So that, to me, that's a little bit of a red flag. Uh, is this a team deal? Is there some sort of tag team thing going on? Are you trying to get a two for one deal in some way? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's sort of the you know the one practical aspect of it. Um, do you and my wife definitely sees her role as supporting me, raising the children, and helping out wherever she can, being very faithful, coming uh, to the different worship services, uh, but but not not wanting to be the lead on anything else. Though uh, as time has gone on, she's done some of that here and there, but. But uh, that, that, I think that, that is a healthy way um, to, to approach uh, the, the role of a pastor's wife. Uh, but also to see our children were, are raised as normal children. And when I say normal, I don't mean, you know, that we want them to be, you know, mediocre or average or anything like that, but, but, but that, uh, that they're not uh, sort of picked out of a crowd as, oh, they're the PKs, you know. You know look, look, yeah, they're, elevated. Yes, either, either, either elevated or downgraded. You know, it's, I've seen it kind of work both ways in, in that regard. But allow them to be normal children uh, of the church. You know, we pray that they'll be uh, good examples in the church as well. Um, but but they're, they're integrated in the life of the church, not set apart, so to speak. Mm. And I think that's, that's, a, that's, that's definitely her heartbeat, that, that our children would be um, seen that way. Um, so, but, you know, my wife plays the piano, for instance. You know, so, oh, you play the piano. Well, that's great. You know, will you play the piano for us? Well, if the Lord would allow that, and if the time is right, yes. Uh, but not as um, just because we're taking this call, uh, she's going to start playing the piano. Um, sure. Allowing her to, to accept the ministries as, as she and I would see fit, not, not being thrust upon her. That would be one thing yeah. that, that we've seen happen a time or two. You, you you mentioned the children and and mm-hmm. and, and uh, of course I only have my experiences to go off. I remember as a teenager, um, you know, you mentioned the PKs, you know, the preachers' kids. Sure. That, that, that's kind of like the buzzword around <laughs> the church that I grew up in. And um, but you know, I, I I would hear from time to time as I think back to those years, um, where you know one teenager in the church would misbehave or do something mm-hmm. wrong, and it's wrong, and they shouldn't be doing it, and they get you know whacked on the hand for yeah. it, or they get yelled at, or you know, whatever the case may be. But when the pastor's child would do it, I would yeah. hear this: yeah. "You should know better. Yeah. You're you're the pastor's child." Right. You see, it's almost like, oh, uh, there's such a such a big divide. Yes. Um, between the pastor's kid and everybody else, mm-hmm. that and I wonder how that influences the children. 
um, and how they respond to that. Um, yeah, they they're fully aware of the fact that my daddy is the bastard. I mean, they, <laughs> they he gets up in front every week. Sure. I, I'm sure. I got that, you know. And right. I used to wait right. for kids to say that. That yeah, no kidding. I I'm, <laughs> I know I'm the pastor's kid because you keep reminding me of this fact. Yeah. Um, but I'm also a child. I'm a kid. I'm learning it with the rest of these teenagers about life and how to walk with the Lord and do all these other things. I don't have automatic information just because I'm a pastor's kid yes. that nobody else has. Right. I think that's a great, great question to ask sure. um, because there is sort of this unspoken expectation that your kids will be some kind of angels in the church. And right. uh, I, you know, I, I don't know where that stuff comes from. Well, um, yeah, that, you know, just to, to explore that just a second, I don't want to get too much on a tangent, but in, in my experience, it seems that in some ways people have almost a Roman Catholic view of the ministry in that um, the pastor is set apart as a special Christian, and uh, his family, even though you know in Roman Catholics you would have a family, but but the family sort of set apart as well. And and so, um, for instance, we, and we even and our, our church is lovely, and we and they've been very kind to us, and, and we've really enjoyed being here. Uh, but uh, in in some ways, though, there's especially maybe with newer folks, when we invite them over for for lunch, it, there's a fear and trembling that happens. You know, oh well, I don't know if I could go to the pastor's house to eat. Yeah, that might be a little too weird. Uh, there's there's a, a standoffishness in terms of of getting to know us sometimes because we are the pastor. Yeah, you, know, you know, I don't know what causes that, but it, part of it I think is is sort of a, a holdover from um, earlier times when when people did revere um, maybe even too much uh, the clergy. Mm-hmm. So that yeah, that plays I, into the family dynamic as well, I think. Absolutely, I think it makes perfect sense, and you know, pragmatic sometimes runs runs the ship anyway and <laughs> reality you know it well anyway it boggles sure. the mind quickly and then i want to get to some kind of you know wrap up sure. and, and i have a couple of questions that i've just created as we're sitting here talking yes. uh, to do that maybe to help future candidates as they inevitably go through this process um but you but you do ask this question towards the end here and and i think this is a good question because as you well know uh, being a pastor depending on your situation but i think in general I, this is the way i've seen it the pastor's pretty much his own boss as it, as it pertains to his time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he sets his own schedule, as it were. Um, he generally um, he doesn't punch a clock. Now, I've never seen a pastor <laughs> punch in on a time any time clock I've ever seen. Sure. Uh, maybe it, maybe it happens. I've never seen it. Um, but you ask this question: What would a good pastor, in quotes, yes, not scare quotes, just quotes, <laughs> um, do during the week? Yes. And 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 I'm curious uh, why that question. I, mean, I think I know the reason. <laughs> <laughs> this is the the main reason I ask that. There is a, I think there are t- different um, expectations for pastors. You know, and, and particularly if you have people who will quote unquote check up on you during the week, um, what are they expecting to see? Are they expecting someone to be there during certain office hours uh, mm-hmm. with the door open, ready to counsel whoever might walk through the door? Do they want the pastor to be out and about in the community? In our community here in Hickory Tavern, which is a rural place that's uh, a former farming community that's now really a bedroom community for Greenville, Greenwood, and Lawrence counties, um, most of the pastors in our community spend most of their time out in the community, either you know visiting folks um, at their work sites or, or they're uh, visiting the hospitals or they're uh, just kind of helping out in the community however they can. Um, Whereas, you know, and, and I certainly do my fair share of hospital visitation and, and, and do other kinds of visitation as well, but, but the bulk of my week is spent, you know, studying. 
And so uh, making sure that they are on board with what we might say is, is sort of a reform pastor's main functions, which would be, you know, preaching, praying, and, and visiting the flock. You know, making sure that those things and preparing to do those things would be the bulk of what of what they expect from the pastor. Mm-hmm. So we have a good yeah, I think you're, yeah, I think you're right. There's, there's, again, it kind of goes back to that. You know, what are these expectations? Who, who created these expectations? Um, right. Re, I realize that real life um, creates a lot of these things. Um, mm-hmm. But as you know, I'm learning in seminary, that you know, if we don't control the times that we need, because if we believe that the preaching of the word of God is mm-hmm. the primary means upon which Christ speaks to His people, yes. If we don't believe that, then we might as well go do something else. Right. Right. So if we believe that then that means we need to give ample and due time um, to that preparation, to that work in the study. And, and I, I've had a couple of professors that would say, you, know, you have to block time out of your day right. to be in your study, to be in the Word, to be in prayer over your sermon and preparation and those kinds of things. Because if you don't, real, the real world, as it were, will intrude as often as humanly possible on that. So, for instance, if you have a secretary or an administrative assistant, you know, being politically correct, right. um, you know, you say, I, "I'm not available unless a giant octopus swallows up the church." You know, <laughs> in other words, I'm not. I'm not barring a disaster, a catastrophe, an untimely death, or that kind of thing, I'm not to be disturbed from this hour to this hour. And I think if you, as you go in as a candidate, if you, if they understand that, look, I, this is my primary responsibility. This doesn't mean I won't do X, Y, Z. But I will do A, and I need to do A, or else this church will not be the church. Right. And um, so I, 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 because I, I think you, you've been doing this for 12 years, uh, at least you've been at, um, where you are now for 12 right. years. And I think you know that it, it doesn't take much for the phone to ring, the emails to come, and the, all these other distractions. And all of a sudden, it's like you're expected to do everything in the church. Right. Which kind of goes back to what we talked about, about having a solid session, a solid core, solid elders who are seeing themselves as shepherds as well in the church. It does. And, yeah. and, and visiting and doing those things sure. as well. So I think it's really an important question. Helps you govern your time mm-hmm. as well, because otherwise you could spend 24 hours a day um, doing all the stuff. And then your family life and your yeah. children... Don't even know who you are. That's right. Quickly, because we're running short on time, I just want to ask um, a couple of questions. Maybe uh, these are really open-ended, but um, uh, as you th- thought through this, and obviously you have, um, as you lo- looked for a call and where the Lord would have you, a uh, pastor, a church, what would be some suggestions, other than creating a list like this, yeah. um, that you would give for new candidates? Maybe some things to be careful about, okay. and things to be sure you do, uh, to think about before you go to a church and sit down with a pastoral search committee or even before that? Mm-hmm. Well, I think uh, I did think about that a little bit, too, as, as we were setting this up. But uh, just to reiterate the, the honesty element, you know, that, that you are very honest with, with them and that you seek for them to be honest with you. Another thing would be to do your homework. Uh, now with, with websites out there, uh, you can find a good bit of information about, about a church. In the PCA, and I'm sure in other, in other denominations, you can find the statistical reports of the presbytery. So you can kind of get a good idea of the membership level you can, and, and giving and these sorts of things and the categories for giving. So that's important work to do. If you can, even before you go, uh, you could talk to a former pastor uh, who has been to the church. Maybe the, the, the immediate pastor would be probably the best person to speak to to kind of get an idea. If you have a friend in the presbytery, uh, get their impression of the church as well. Do your homework about the community. 
Uh, mm. Maybe uh, you can Google whatever town it is and and see you know whether the statistics of the town, uh, the demographic report, and just, just so you have an idea of the setting of where, where you'll be ministering. Um, also, uh, if you have an opportunity before this is just sort of a maybe before you get to the point of of sitting down with with, with the session, but but as you're as you're preparing your MDF or or whatever form your denomination has, you know, also include with that a resume so that they have a quick snapshot of, of who you are and maybe even a cover letter kind of letting them know kind of who uh, even in more detail who you are and how you might be a good good fit for their for their congregation uh, those are some things that are very practical um, another thing maybe would be making sure that you understand the dress before you get there uh, you can always overdress it's very bad to underdress you know for an interview you know, that's a very very basic thing but but that, that's an important aspect of it uh, make sure that, that you, as as the man who's being entertained by these people uh, for the interview, write thank you notes afterwards, letting people know uh, that you appreciate their time. Um, if you're staying at somebody's house, uh, have your wife do the same for those who, for the, those who are hosting you for any meals you have. You know, those, those are very basic things, but you, you want to make a good impression upon them. Uh, you want to be truthful, but you also want to want to present yourself in the best light in terms of of your manners and your, and your Christian kindness and, and your, your receiving of their hospitality. Yeah, I mean, I, I love what you said about just basic common courtesies. Yes. I mean, these things are so easily overlooked, and, mm-hmm. and, and you know, even as a seminary student, mm-hmm. and, 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 and those who are listening to this may not be seminary students, but maybe someone in your church, and you may not even be pursuing the ministry, but common courtesy. Right. If someone has you over to your house for dinner on a Lord's Day or whatever day, yeah. um, it takes five seconds to write a thank you note <laughs> and drop it in the mail. Right. People appreciate that stuff. I know it's lo- it's a lost art in our world today. Uh, you know, it's it's different. I don't know what ever happened to that. Um, but if you're a seminary student and you're pursuing this, and you know, these are things that should be happening already. Right. So this common courtesy element that you mentioned should just happen by matter of course because you've had the habit of doing it for mm-hmm. so long that you just do it because that's what you do and it's the right thing to do. And the dress issue, you, I, I got a smile when you said that because, as I indicated earlier, I've had the opportunity to interview people in different situations. Sure. And I've always kind of been amused um, where people will come to me, and I'm in a shirt and tie, and I'm representing a company, right. and I'm, I'm right. interviewing people for a job, and they walk in the door with torn jeans. Yeah. And, <laughs> and I think to myself, boy, how badly do you want this job? Right. You know, it's an impression that you can't get back. That's right, and you can't change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this so. is a silly thing, but but I, I've been told that particularly when you're talking about a man being interviewed by other men, uh, the the, one, the thing that men look for first is your shoes, making no, sure that your shoes are shined uh, and you know without scuffs and all that. And I remember my my dress shoes by the time I finished seminary had holes in the bottom, of them, so uh, thankfully they didn't ask me to to kneel or anything like that. But uh, I had actually bought a new pair of of shoes before I, my ordination because my the guy who was ordaining me said, "Hey, you know, you can't show those holes to the congregation here." So, uh, I sometimes budget your tight. But you're absolutely right. I've actually suggested to some young men here when they're looking for work. Yeah. I mean, even if you're just yeah. going for a job at Walmart, I said, you know, there's there's one piece of clothing that that most people forget yep. when they're going for a job interview. Right. And it tells and it says a lot to the interviewer. It does. And you won't even know what happened. <laughs> That's right. And they're like, and, and the answer I usually get from people is what? They have no idea what I'm talking about. And I say your shoes. Yes. <laughs> I say it shows a it shows an attention to detail. That's right. That's exactly. It shows a neatness and a cleanness. I mean, you polish your shoes up. You don't have it's not frayed. They're not you know the shoe the sole isn't falling practically falling off. Right. You know? 
you take consideration of those those details, they're going to think that here's a detail-oriented person. Right. Now, you may not be, yep. but they're going to think you are. That's right. Needless That's right. to say, we're running a little off sure. far field. What kind of mistakes maybe did you make um, as you went into this process as a 28-year-old? Um, that's a good question. Um, it, it seems like it's been so long. I'm 40 now, so it's a little, it seems a little bit distant, but, uh, um, you know, I can't think of anything specific. Um, maybe, uh, I'm trying to think through that. Uh, that's a kind of a, that's a tough one. Um, I'm sure I've made plenty. Uh, it's one of those questions I used to ask employees. So they come in for a job and I'd say, you know, tell me, tell me about some of your strengths. <laughs> right. And, and boy, I tell you, you, you get a list. That's you right. Almost stop them. But then I say, well, get, tell me some of the things you'd like to see improved in your life. Some of your weaknesses, things that you, others would say, you know, you really need to improve this area. That's the you know, kind of a, and and every sudden the room would just all the oxygen would evaporate out of the room, and there would be kind of this <laughs> look across the table. I found that most people have a harder time. Sure, with sure. If there's one thing, if there's one thing I'd I'd say, um, and I'm not exactly sure how to put a put a fine point on this, but but. Uh, maybe I didn't in investigate the culture of the community as well as I, I could have. Um, you know, one of the jobs of the pastor obviously is exegeting the scriptures, but it's also exegeting the people that are there and, and trying your best to apply the scriptures um, to their needs. And I don't, I did not do a very good job of, of making a, a real good determination as to, as to how I would need to preach to the people when I got there or whether I was equipped sure. to do that. So that, sure. that would be a pretty big um, uh, thing that I would, that I would have done differently. And another thing is this, and, and this is, this could really, and it, it was not a problem for us by, by God's grace, um, but it could be a problem uh, as, as it potentially uh, would be, I didn't investigate uh, in terms of how children would, should be educated. Um, mm. Now, you know, we had to, we, we homeschool our children, um, but there are many who, who do a good job in other ways, uh, either uh, through public school or through, through private Christian schools or, or whatever the options are available to you. But uh, letting them know that ahead of time so that they could digest that, I think there might have been a little fear issue there because uh, the school here was really central to uh, the life of the community. And so, so we were probably a little hesitant. I and mean, we were, maybe weren't sure we had a three-year-old and a one-year-old at that point in time. So it wasn't a pending decision, but, but I would have rather had a feel for that before uh, getting onto the, onto the field. Mm. Those, are good. Those are really good points, and especially this knowing the people in the community because yeah. – you're not preaching to a bunch of lifeless human beings out there. They're connected to the world they live in they are. in some capacity. And so to help to know, you know, what kind of world are they living in? Right. Um, you know, you go from one city to another, you could go from a whole different world to a whole different world. That's right. Um, someone once said that the best city to raise your children, a family is in Greenville, South Carolina. <laughs> Perhaps I, I didn't have to do that. I raised my children in Virginia, but, right. um, and, and that may be true, but then you you might be entertaining a call in Chicago, right. which is an entirely different thing. Sure. And um, knowing the kinds of people, their tendencies, and what they're connected to is very helpful um, because that's what you're doing, right? You're ministering to people, right? <laughs> not just pews that have people sitting in them. Sure. But these are real red-blooded human beings that um, that you're ministering to. So I think that's very good advice as well. Um, I'm sure there's a host of other things we could talk about on the subject, and I know there's probably not a person alive that's gone down this road or is about to go down this road that isn't somewhat fearful of the entire process. Right. Um, it, it's difficult to have people picking and prodding and, 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 and sticking their nose into areas of your life that perhaps no one knows about or has never really done. 
um, and have to have that constant evaluation going on. It's hard. I, mm-hmm. I, and um, But I think you would agree that the biggest thing we can do through this process is pray that God mm-hmm. will put us right where he wants us yes. and nowhere else. And we wouldn't be tempted to go where he would not want us to go. Um, and that we would be used to his glory and his, to, to further his kingdom, wherever it may be. I joke with my wife, and she sometimes asks me, where do you think the Lord will send us? And I said, I don't know. I said, uh, I don't really think about it because I'm too far away from it to think about it. I said, but knowing me, it'll be Alaska, <laughs> which, if you know me, would not be where I'd want to go. Sure. Um, it's not, no thank you, cold, <laughs> snow. I'm not, I've lived in that all my life, and sure. I'd rather not. But point is, is that if that's where the Lord wants me, to be prepared and ready and open to that and not resist it because of my own personality or quirks or, or tendencies Mm -hmm. for that matter. So I think that should govern all of these things. And as one makes his own list or borrows your list or, you you know, gets another list from a friend, another pastor, um, these are just means to an end. They're not an end of themselves, I think in the, in the long run. Uh, Dr. Cathcart, any further advice for, us young seminary guys who think they know everything but know nothing? Well, I think your point on prayer is, is paramount. You know, praying uh, throughout the whole process, before, during, and after, you know, letting the, letting the pulpit committee know that you're praying for them and encouraging mm-hmm. them in their work, because it is very difficult work, whether it's a session or whether it's a, uh, a committee made from folks from, from the congregation. That, that is tireless and thankless work in many ways, so encouraging them through your prayers uh, and also, make sure that you are in good contact with your wife on this. I mean, the Lord has given you to her as her to you as it helped me and use her and use her wisdom as as you make these decisions. Absolutely, and just for the listeners' sake, um, that is number forty-seven on his list. <laughs> Asking them how you, as a candidate, can pray for those people. Um, that that I, it seems like it's such a simple thing to do, but it speaks volumes about your heart intention, as long as you're not doing it just as a matter of rote, you know, right. just because it's a nice thing to say. Sure. If you really mean that, so if they tell you, then you be sure you pray for them. That's right. Write it down and make a card or something like that to keep with you. Absolutely. Well, this has been really great. I, I think the the practical suggestions, uh, I think, uh, you know, exploring some of the reasons, we, we certainly didn't cover everything, um, every question on here, but as I said, I try to group them as best I could. Um, by what I think are critical things sure. anyway, and maybe some fun things along the way. But um, it's been really great talking with you about this as someone who's been through it um, and now is in the middle of pastoring a church and um, and also uh, as your your activity, um, as your work on the on Presbytery, you're, you're in the, I think you're the chairman, right? That's correct. The chairman of the Candidates and Credentials Committee. I'm probably going to get an F now for <laughs> That's not right. being 100% sure. Candidates but, Committee, uh, that's correct. So, so he's on the front end of all this. He gets them early. And um, so these are great suggestions, especially as men go through seminary and um, are going to probably, unless the Lord changes something, going to face this very <laughs> sure. rea- this reality. Uh, you know, what, however, if you enjoy those kinds of things, great. I, <laughs> I don't, <laughs> but if you do, um, wonderful. But these will help yeah. um, frame uh, where you think the Lord would have you be um, very different from a job interview. That's right. Um, and and let me say this as well. If anyone needs, uh, would like to talk to me about these things, I'd be glad. I'm more than happy to, to talk with anyone who's going through the process. Great. And there, so there you go. So now you get some pastoral wisdom and counsel. Just strengthen that. 
um, as you do it. So thank you for being on, Dr. Cathcart, and um, the Lord's blessings on your work there and um, and um, everything that you're involved in, Presbytery and, and the church life and, and pastoring and preaching and Oh, I don't know how you guys all. I don't know how you guys do it all. Um, I, I think you guys uh, probably have extra hours in the week that nobody else gets for some reason. Um, but it's amazing um, how much work is just has to be done, and um, and it gets done um, by the Lord's grace. That's exactly uh, right. The Lord is good and through it all, each and every week. Yeah. So thank you for being on, and I and I'm sure this will be a great um, benefit for somebody. I hope. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Out there listening to this throughout. You have been listening to an interview with Dr. Robert Cathcart. He is um, the pastor at Friendship PCA out in Lawrence, South Carolina, not too far from us here at Greenville Seminary, and he's been pastoring there for 12 years. And we've been talking, as you've been listening, obviously, we've been talking about the, the process that young men, or old men, as present company included, <laughs> goes through when they leave seminary and they they face this this daunting task of, of being interviewed and candidating with different churches and trying to understand where the Lord would have them go. Um, and, it, it, you know, if you think through it carefully and you imply some of the things that we've talked about, it, it can go a lot easier um, or it can go hard, depending on how you choose which way you'd like it to be, easier or hard. Um, but you can do some things wisely ahead of time, as we've discussed, to help ascertain where the Lord would have you go. So it's been a good discussion, and I've really appreciated the time that's been taken to do this. Real quick, as I wrap up, um, if you want to find out more information about this podcast, we do have a website. It's simply confessingourhope.com. All the past episodes are there, as well as the ability to download it for your iPhone or Android or whatever your heart's content, BlackBerry. I don't know too many people who use a BlackBerry. But anyway, BlackBerry um, as well. So utilize that resource. So confessingourhope.com is where you can get all the information about past episodes as well as who's coming up on the broadcast. And speaking of which, I have no idea. But you hear me say that every week because I usually don't have any idea who's coming up until I'm told by my um, friend who helps me uh, line up guests. So until next time, whenever that may be, we do thank you for listening to this particular edition of Confessing Our Hope, the podcast of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. And God bless.